Welcome to you, happy warrior. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show. You heroic men going to work early every morning, regardless of whether you feel like it. Disciplining yourself and improving yourself. Watching over your spouse and children if you have them. And taking care of business. Generating cash flow. Doing what your head tells you to do when your head tells you it must be done. You who ignore your heart's desire to indulge the body's seductive whisper, you who have tamed your appetites, you boldly heed the clarion call of responsibility to those you are strong enough to support and brave enough to care for. You are the noble knights defending the fortress of civilization against those hungry hordes of scheming and serving surging savages trying to invade and conquer what you and your fathers have built. Those barbarians out there in the street, those mobs, those protesters, yes, they know that even after they destroy the civilization you built, as they wretchedly crawl through its wrecked ruins, they will still live better than in anything they could ever have built themselves. Only you stand between the nightmare of socialistic slavery and the possible bright hope of tomorrow. And you women, you beautiful and brave women, resisting government's treacherous proposal to marry it rather than accepting a golden ring from one clear-eyed man dreaming of a shared tomorrow, you gorgeous and courageous women who smilingly and graciously carry the load of work, marriage, and family, inspiring your man to greatness and nurturing your young ones to moral maturity as well as physical growth. Yes, you men and women, you happy warriors who do all this and have done all this. Yes, you are my natural audience. You're the natural audience of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You are the audience I devotedly serve recognizing that every day that I can bring you the helpful, life-affirming insights of ancient Jewish wisdom, that is another day of privilege for me, your rabbi. Because you are not a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life, you have your hand on the steering wheel of your life, as William Ernest Henley's great poem Invictus ends I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Because you are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life, it is my great honor to serve you and my delight to welcome you to another episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Yes, that's right. The only show in the entire digital universe that reveals how the world really does work. And I thought that for today, perhaps what I would do is give you 13 principles, 13 tips, tools, techniques, 13 simple strategies for making your life a better one. Because it doesn't really matter exactly who you are to me. 
It doesn't matter to me exactly what you do because I probably don't know exactly who you are and exactly what you do. And so I have to scrupulously engage in my homework to make sure that what I convey to you is given over in terms of almost mathematical precision. I have to give it over to you in terms of a set of simple strategies that work for every person in any time and in any place. So let's start off with number one. They are not in any particular order of importance. They are in the order that I wrote them down in as I prepared to share with you in today's show. Here is number one. Trust experts only to supply specific data which may or may not be true, but absolutely do not depend on experts when you have to make operational decisions that affect your faith, your family, your finances, your friendships, or your physical fitness. Those are all decisions you have to make. If you listen to an expert on physical fitness, it is quite possible that he would describe to you what you should do if physical fitness was the only thing you cared about in your life. But it isn't. It's one of the things. But you can't expect an expert to take that into account. That's not what experts do. What you have to do is take the data and absorb it and make your own operational decision, either weighting that, that data or disregarding it as you see fit. If a, an expert says that schools should not be opened because we cannot guarantee the health safety of every person, then that is an expert speaking. There could be many other reasons to open a school. Does that mean some people might get sick? Yes, it probably does. In exactly the same way that if you ask an expert whose expertise was the reduction of fatalities on American roads, or for that matter on the roads in any country on earth, he's, he was an expert on how to reduce fatalities. For him, zero fatalities is the ideal. He will tell you that speed limits must be rigidly enforced at 15 miles an hour. And that way, even if somebody is struck while crossing the street by a vehicle traveling at 15 miles an hour and no more, there is a good chance that the person will survive, thereby ensuring that the expert on fatality reduction on roads fulfills his mission, but his mission isn't your mission. And you decide, no, I'm good with a speed limit of 60 miles an hour, but that means that there will be 30,000 deaths per year. I understand, and we accept that. If your mission as an expert 
was to reduce fatalities and that was it, then you would ban mountain climbing and scuba diving, two of many activities that are highly pleasurable to their practitioners, but which would have to be prohibited because they do raise the likelihood of fatality. And so you have to see that the ultimate decision for your life, the operational decisions you make for your life, will not necessarily follow any one particular expert. You will listen to several experts. And regardless of what decisions you're making, whether business decisions or family decisions or health decisions, whatever they are, you will get as much data as you can, and then only you can make that decision. You see, for experts, all human beings are identical, but we're not. We are each one of us unique in certain ways that I'll describe later. Each one of us is unique, and each one of us has our own sense of priorities. We have our own sense of the things that are important for us to do. If an expert in nutrition told you that what you must now do from here onwards, you must restrict your diet to nuts and raisins and wheat germ and sunflower seeds, and that is it, that is the correct nutritional advice you must be given, and I'm not saying any uh, wise nutritionist would actually say that, but if a nutritionist said that and you really think that operational decisions in your life to be on the basis of experts, then you have to go ahead and do that, even if you begin to question whether life under those conditions is actually worth living. But you see, you must not fall prey to experts. And right now in many countries around the world, it is epidemiological experts and medical experts and pandemic experts uh, who are setting public policy. And that is outrageous. It is also a terrible mistake. Possibly, possibly one of the worst mistakes, and I'm speaking about the United States of America now, it's possibly one of the worst mistakes that the United States has made since they brought slaves over from Africa. Probably one of the worst. And the history books will, uh, will report on this and our descendants will find out. But uh, very possibly, this dependence on experts to make public policy, terrible, terrible mistake. Uh, the operational decisions of your life must be made by you. You certainly should take into account information and data, whether it's from experts or from anyone else. Uh, as you know, I worry about the term expert. I worry about the term expert in the same way I worry about the term community activist. And in the same way I worry about the uh, occupation of archaeologist. I worry about these because uh, there is very limited accountability. Uh, I worry about occupations like ethicist. 
An ethicist, really? No, there isn't such a thing. An ethicist has to tell you, number one, according to what system of ethics is he going to be giving you data? And secondly, what accountability is there? In other words, if he gives you bad ethics, can you sue him? You see, it's not so simple. And so uh, experts is a term that sets the alarm hairs on the back of my neck jangling. That's right, because I am very, very suspicious when I hear the words experts. Let's move to number two for today. Life lesson number two, master your emotions. Do not let them master you. Wow. And that means you really have to be aware when you say things like, you know what I really feel like? And the correct answer from you to your inner person is, hey, I actually am not that interested in what you really feel like. What I'm more interested in is what would be the best thing for me to do now. Is what you really feel like advancing you along the road towards your goals and your purposes? Or is it perhaps hindering you? And so the fact that you feel like it is irrelevant. Master your feelings. Do not let them master you. Master your emotions. Same thing. Don't let them master you. Come to love what you do well and competently rather than try and do what you love doing. You've heard me speak of this. If you are a regular listener to the Rabbi Daniel Appen show, or you are a regular visitor to our website at rabbidaniellappin.com, or you are a regular reader of our books, then you've heard me say before that when it comes to the work you do, don't look for work that you love necessarily. There are very few of us, very few, who are likely to find work doing what we love. But if you learn to master your emotions instead of letting them master you, then you will very quickly come to love what you do well and what you do competently. And you know this is true because how many times have you watched somebody being interviewed on television or you've read an interview and it's somebody who does some interesting kind of work And towards the end of the interview, the interviewer might say, well, here you are about to retire from a lifetime of work, um, putting out fires at oil wells. And um, just wanting to know, this has been dangerous work. You've been injured a few times. It's dirty work. You come home exhausted and covered with oil and smoke. If you had to do it all again, what would you choose to be next time around? And what do most of them say? Almost without exception, every interview of this kind finishes with a person saying, you know, John or James or Molly, uh, I've thought about it and I want to tell you something. I would do exactly the same thing. I love what I do. 
and it's very few people. I've come across a couple, but it's very few people who answer anything differently. That is what they say. Now, just statistically speaking, is it likely that somehow or another all these people fell into occupations that they love? Is it really likely that the man in the example I gave you went through high school saying, mm, hmm, all I want to do is become an oil well fire fighter? No, it isn't. He fell into that. One thing led to another. He found himself doing it. He became competent at it. And then what happens? You love it. It's really important to understand the emotion follows the action. Only on the sad losers of the world do actions follow emotions. But if you're not a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life, and you are the captain of your soul, well then you will make sure that your emotions follow your actions. Throw yourself into your work. Yes, you probably don't like it very much. And maybe another opportunity will open up for right now. Throw yourself into it with all your vim and verve and vigor and all your enthusiasm. And to your astonishment, you will actually come to like it. Because emotions will follow our actions, provided we commit ourselves to our actions with fortitude and with determination. In the area of romance, in the area of family, and you know that under the heading of family, when I speak of my five F's coaching program, I speak about family. And family isn't just your brothers and sisters, your mothers and fathers, but family also covers the entire tricky and challenging and unimaginably complex area of sex. That's right, because in the final analysis, you and all your cousins are all together at last year's Thanksgiving get-together only because a man and a woman many, many years ago caught sight of one another and something special passed between them and they decided to be married and they sought ecstasy in one another. And the result is your parents and you and your cousins. That's right. The physical attraction between a man and a woman is what lies at the root of family when you think about it. And so even in that area, you have to realize that we don't act in accordance with emotions. You don't commit yourself in marriage to the person you fell in love with. Now, in rare, rare situations, that works out. But that works out usually when it isn't just on the basis of your infatuation with that man or your infatuation with that woman. But it's because you involved your parents and your family members and you involved friends and you listened to advice, guidance, warnings. And at the end of that all, you went ahead and you're blissfully married and God bless you and that's wonderful. But in the overwhelming majority of cases where 
the act of marriage follows the emotion of love, it doesn't go so well. But if the act of marriage and the commitment, the absolute covenant and promise on which it's based, come first, then the love just grows after that. Now, I know that that sounds like a tired aphorism and people like to dismiss the idea that's so old-fashioned. We're not in the 1950s now, you know. We marry for love, not for... Um, Don't forget, I'm talking about timeless truths here. And uh, I, I recently, you may remember, a few shows back, I spoke about the importance for men to feel needed. And uh, I got a certain amount of uh, angry and somewhat hysterically shrill letters um, to reminding me that this is not the 1950s and uh, men have to stop being sexist. And the idea of marrying a woman who actually needs you is a part of a primitive, tribalistic power disparity that is not part of modern marriage. Uh, I'm pretty sure that I could make some reliable guesses about the life circumstances of every single person who wrote to me. I've become quite good at that, actually. And if you want evidence of it, or you want to take me down a notch or two, you might enjoy reading some of our Ask the Rabbi um, uh, letters in on our website. We have a section called ATR, Ask the Rabbi. And in that, uh, my wife, Susan Lappin, and I, um, we, we work very hard on the letters we choose to respond to. We study them. We scrutinize them. We pray about them because we are trying to extract as much information as we can from those letters. And so uh, when I got hate mail because I said that the best marriages are the marriages where he knows that she needs him and she knows that he knows that he needs her. And uh, it is precisely because of their differences And it is precisely because in some areas she's stronger and in some areas he's stronger. In some areas she's weaker and so be it. And in other areas he is weaker. It is the combination of making up for one another's weaknesses and emerging with a new entity called the marriage, which has the strengths of both of them. That's the idea. But love that emotion should follow the commitment rather than basing the commitment on that emotion. Uh, so, look, this, this principle that we have to control our emotions is, is very fundamental. Um, it's actually rooted in the Ten Commandments. I think everybody knows that the Tenth Commandment says you mustn't want things that belong to other people. I think the uh, traditional word from most translations is covet. You mustn't covet what other people want. And, um, and by the way, 
by the way, I should tell you that for the first time, uh, we really are comfortable um, recommending a specific Bible. And the Bible is found on our website. Well, you know what? It's it's going to be on the website by uh, by the last the last week of August 2020. Uh, the Bible will be up there. It's our very special Jerusalem Bible, and um, the uh, the commandment I'm talking about is found on page 226, uh, where it says, "Thou shalt not covet." thy neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife etc etc all his things his possessions and that's commandment number 10 on page 226 of the recommended bible you'll find it by the way on our website if you go to rabbidaniellappin.com and you'll go to the store and as i say um the uh it'll be there by the last week of august 2020 and you'll look for the recommended Bible, and you'll find it there, and uh, you will have a beautiful family heirloom Bible, which I selected and offer to you for various reasons that you'll be able to read about there. Uh, the Bible has unique qualities to it. It's a Hebrew and English Old Testament, so um, there's there's quite a lot of interesting things there. But at any rate, if we read the Tenth Commandment, which I just did, which is you mustn't covet stuff that belongs to other people, period. Don't want, desire, covet things that belong to other people. Okay, fine. Why not? Well, like, what's the big problem? After all, you've already told me, have you not, in um, in commandment number six, thou shalt not steal that's also on page 227 thou shalt not steal well if you told me thou shalt not steal then really what does it matter if i covet as long as i'm not going to steal it and god says no if you steal somebody else's things it hurts him and it hurts you you you're taking away his stuff but you're also damaging yourself by having in your possession things that you do not own. Because when you steal something, it never becomes your property. It's an interesting point, isn't it? You might think, well, now that I've stolen it, it's mine. You should be aware that if you steal something, it's never yours. You are always living with a silent accuser. Some, you're living with this object or thing that looks at you, as it were, with accusing eyes because its mere presence in your possession is an indictment of who you are. So stealing something hurts the victim of the theft and it also hurts the thief. But how about the 10th commandment? I really want that thing of his. That doesn't hurt him at all. But boy, does it hurt you. Does it eat away at your soul? Well, you might say to me, Lappin, I acknowledge that it eats away at my soul, but I can't help it. You know, I'm just completely suffused with an ineradicable deep desire for that thing of his. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to act on it. I'm absolutely not a thief. I'm not going to go and take it. But my goodness, do I want it. And I can't help how I feel. Well, 
my approach to that is that God would not have given you an instruction if it was impossible. You will notice that nowhere in the Bible is there an instruction that on certain festival days you must fly in the air by waving your arms to get to Jerusalem. No, it doesn't say that. Nowhere in the Bible are we ever asked by our God to do something we're incapable of doing. It's just not there. And so control your think, your thoughts and your emotions. Stop desiring that thing that doesn't belong to you. I can't help it. It's how I feel. Yes, you can, because you are learning today that our job is to master our emotions and not to let them master us. All right. That was number two. Let's go to number three. Number three is do your work on a schedule, not when inspiration strikes you or when you feel like it. Well, that last little uh, emphatic few words, when you feel like it, of course, was covered in um, number two. But here in number three, we're saying do your work on a schedule, not when inspiration strikes you or when you just might think you might happen to feel like doing it. Okay, that's a really important thing. Now, we all resist being hemmed in. We all love the feeling of total freedom. It's one of the most seductive aspects of a vacation, where you wake up on that first morning on vacation and you say to yourself, I actually can do anything I feel like or, or even nothing that I feel like. How wonderful is that? That's the great appeal of being on vacation. Total freedom. And what I'm telling you here is that success in life, every aspect of your life, your physical fitness, your relationships, both family and friendship, certainly your financial life, all comes from structuring your day, hemming yourself in, leaving yourself as little freedom as possible to the point that you even schedule in relaxation time. Schedule in time to do nothing, but do nothing on a schedule if that's what you want to do, right? It's really important. And so do things on a schedule because that way you actually get to do them, which is wonderful. It's exactly what you want to do. Uh, there is a, um, uh, a beautiful verse in Proverbs, in uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 22, verse 29, uh, in my special Jerusalem Bible, page 2011. Uh, it's actually the last verse in chapter 22 of Proverbs, and it, it reads, in the Hebrew, it reads, Chazita ish mahir bimlachto, Do you see a man diligent in his business? He will stand before kings. And uh, what it's really talking about is exactly this. Doing one's work on a schedule, on time. So as that you never actually say, I'll get around to it. Uh, I'll try uh, when I can. But in actuality, you say, well, until it goes on my schedule, it's not going to happen. But as soon as it goes on my schedule, you can count on it. That is a tremendous secret, because um, 
it's important to note that that word used for work in the verse from Proverbs I quoted, it doesn't, you know, there are many different words in the Lord's language for work. Uh, drudgery work, um, money-making work, etc. The word that is used there, melacha, means specifically creative work. It's also, by the way, uh, precisely the kind of work that we are prohibited from doing on the Sabbath. And understanding the meaning of that word melacha completely resolves the paradox that perplexes so many people which is that I'm not allowed to turn on the electric light switch on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, but I can move the heavy dining room table from one side of the room to the other. Surely one is more work than the other. Yeah, that's right, as long as you're unaware of the fact that in physics, the word work has a very specific meaning. It means a force multiplied by the distance through which its point of application moves. Which is to say that if I lean against a wall and push with all my might, and somebody with a watch says, when you've done this for 15 minutes, I'll pay you $50. To an economist, I've done work. But to a physicist, I haven't because the wall didn't move. But if I move the table a few inches, then I've done work according to the physicist. But since I'm only doing it because my wife asked me to do it and I nobody's paying me for it, to the economist, I didn't do any work. Work means creative work. And creative work is what makes us human beings happy. And so to make sure that we're doing creative work on a schedule, that works very well for all of us. One of the most creative things, by the way, that we can do in our lives, and I'm mentioning this just because not everyone would know automatically that this really is a creative activity, it's real creative work, and that is restoring order from chaos and confusion. And so if you tidy up and put everything away in its proper place so as that your workspace is now ready for the next day's work, that is incredibly creative and incredibly wonderful. Not an accident, by the way, that uh, the very second verse of the book of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible speaks about the chaos and disorganization that was prevalent in the universe, and God's first action is beginning to organize. So don't ever underestimate how incredibly effective it can be, particularly if you need to sort of kickstart your motivation, how incredibly motivating it can be if you start off with some organizing work and, uh, and it goes very, very well. There is a successful chain of stores called the Container Store and their mission, what they were built around is the following statement. Our goal is to help provide order to an increasingly busy and chaotic world. Isn't that terrific? We provide creative, multifunctional, customizable storage and organization solutions that help our customers save time, save space, and improve the quality of their lives. I don't think I could have written their mission statement any better than that. So let's go on to number four. 
Timeless truth number four for today's show. Your spiritual powers trump your physical or your material ones. Be aware of that. And so in the same way that everybody understands that you have to look after your physical powers, you got to eat well, you exercise, you got to sleep enough, you got to drink enough. Well, everybody knows these rules of taking care of your physical being. But not many people know how to nurture their spiritual being. And you see, those are actually more important. Let me go back to the container store for just a moment. It's, it's, it's a business that I have studied, and, uh, and it interests me, obviously. One of their principles of operation, in terms of their hiring procedures, is the following statement. One great person is equal to three good people in terms of business productivity. We're wild-eyed fanatics when it comes to hiring great people. Now, just ask yourself what the container store means by that. When they say one great person is equal to three good people, so we're going to be only going to be wild-eyed fanatics and hire great people, does that mean they want good-looking people? No, not at all. Does it mean they want people whose skin color is a certain shade? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, does it mean they want somebody with... Um, uh, long hair or short hair or red hair. No, they're not looking at your physical characteristics. You want to go work there. They are looking entirely at your spiritual powers. That's what they're buying. When they say a great person, what are they talking about? They're looking for people with diligence, meaning they will tackle their job and not do it just enough to get by or just enough that the supervisor won't notice what's wrong. Or, but they are diligent about it. They take personal pride in doing a great job. Punctuality. Punctuality. That's a spiritual thing. It's not a physical quality. It's a spiritual quality. Personal integrity. Yeah, spiritual as well. You know, those people... Um, rampaging through the streets and rioting in Chicago and New York and other many other cities around the United States, tragically, Seattle, Los Angeles. Uh, those people not going to get jobs in container store. Not happening. Because they're not great people. Right? It's simple. It's not, it's not because of any factor having to do with color or racial characteristics or economic characteristics. No, they will not get jobs there because they are not great people. How do I know? Well, because they lack personal integrity. That's all. It's very simple. And so these qualities are qualities that as you try and improve yourself, and rightly so, one of my F's, physical fitness, is absolutely make sure you're eating well, drinking water, sleeping, make sure all of those things. But no less important is the need to make sure you are also nurturing and growing and developing and improving your spiritual characteristics, because those are the things that will make you be described as a great person who is equal to at least three merely good people worth many more times than three of some of the bad people 
out there today. The people in my preamble I described as barbarians. Yes, a great person is equal to thousands of barbarians and to at least three good people. Let me ask you, these qualities that make you a good person, these all these spiritual qualities, here's another example. Um, you're an optimist. That's spiritual. You're a cheerful person, which makes you nice to work alongside. These are all spiritual qualities. You don't get depressed. Very much a spiritual quality. I know there are uh, aspects, there are medical conditions, but the overwhelming majority of people who say, I'm feeling so depressed, and who then proceed to corrupt and uh, spoil the environment of the people around them by beaming out their depression. These people, where these qualities that make a great person, resilience, your ability to bounce back from defeat, all spiritual, all qualities that you should be working on just as assiduously as you work out at the gym because your physical and your spiritual beings are every bit as important. Well, I'd say even more important in certain ways, certain cases, but certainly equally important. And certainly when it comes to being hired by a good company or building your own business satisfactorily and becoming a successful entrepreneur, it is the spiritual qualities that matter. And let me just ask you to think about this. Which of these qualities are taught at your local gig? For those of you who are listening for the first time, that means a government indoctrination camp, otherwise hitherto known as public schools. Uh, do you know any of these qualities that are engendered and inculcated in students at public school? How about at your local kindergarten? That's the institution formerly known as college or university. Do you know of any of these qualities? Do universities make their students bigger people? greater people or lesser people? I think the jury is already in on all of that. So um, that's number four, right? Number four is knowing and understanding how your spiritual powers are at least the equivalent of your physical ones. So develop them also. Uh, number five, figure out your values. You've got to know what your values are. You've got to know why you leap out of bed in the morning. What really drives you? What do you really care about? What is an unchangeable in your life? It doesn't have to be only one thing, but you've got to know what they are. So you really got to do not only, you've got to know not what you do. Everyone knows what they do, right? I, I get up, I get dressed, I pray, I go to work in the morning. I, everybody's got that. Why do you do it? Well, so I get paid at the end of the month or at the end of two weeks or whatever it is. Well, no, that is part of it. I mean, obviously, that is a legitimate and honorable part of the deal and of the transaction. But try and find more to it than that. Start thinking in terms of the human beings whose lives you are changing and impacting, if nothing more than by the way you interact with them. You've got to really figure out and understand what your real mission is your personal and your business one. I told you a few minutes ago, the business mission of the container store, which is beautiful. Um, you've got to have your own work mission and your own personal mission. And 
develop and understand what your real values are. Well, what's so useful about that? Well, I'll tell you. One of the things that's so useful about that is number six. And that is once you know your unshakable and immovable values, you are free to toss out all the other stuff when you want, when you want to or when you should, right? This is obviously true for cleaning your closets. Find the suits or the dresses you always want to have. And once you've locked on to the things that are just not going to change, right? Even if I'm growing out of it a little bit, even if I have to hold my stomach in, but I'm still keeping that pair of pants, well, now I'm free to dispose of the others because I've established what's an immovable. Right? That's a little bit like what uh, that clever woman Marie Kondo has. She's built an absolute empire of a business legitimately helping people declutter. And one of the things she starts off with, she says, identify the things that bring you joy, things that just spark a, a, an instant of happiness in you. Those are things you want to keep. Those are things that actually do mean something to you. But once you've established that, it's great because it means you can now go ahead and get rid of all the other stuff, right? Well, it's like that with ideas as well. Old ideas, you've got to check them regularly, once a week, once a month at the, at the most. And maybe it's time to outgrow them. Right. Have you noticed that um, people sometimes regress to childhood when they're with their families, with their parents? So a fully grown adult man with children of his own uh, spends an afternoon with his parents, or maybe it's at their Thanksgiving table, and he regresses, and his, his wife cracks up inside of herself. She tells him afterwards, you were, you were like a little boy there. When, when your mother gave you an instruction, you reacted as if you were 10 years old. All right, maybe, maybe that's something it's time to outgrow. <laughs> maybe it's time to stop that. Um, you know, if you're a 10-year-old boy, your ideas about girls are very soon going to need updating. And if you don't ever update them, you become handicapped as a young adult. You've got to be able to throw out old ideas just the way you have to be able to throw out old things that are cluttering up your closet. Maybe you've got ideas about religion and faith and spirituality. Maybe you got them back in an age when secularism was cool. You know what? Time to update, right? I mean, really. Um... Well, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I, I don't like organized religion. Fine, so find a disorganized church if that's what... Come on, time to refresh. Uh, are you still walking around in clothing that uh, is 20 years old? You know, hopefully not. That's why goodwill exists. So you don't have to feel bad about throwing something out that has brought you happiness as well as dignity the ability to wear clothing you feel good in, it's wonderful. You don't want to toss it in the garbage. It's, it's, it's holy. But give it to goodwill, right? And if, you know, if, they, if they can do something with it, they will. If they can't, they do. I don't know what they do, but probably sell it to make paper. Who knows? But whatever it is, um, in the same way that you throw out and dispose of old clothing, please 
you will feel so energized and so refreshed and so youthful when you learn to regularly check out your closet of ideas and just throw out the ones that don't belong anymore. Really, it's very, very important because things change. And if you don't change, you become a dinosaur. And you know what happened to the dinosaurs. Um, think about, you know, back in 1960, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. The 25 biggest companies in America in 1960, how many of them do you think were still in business by the year 2000, 40 years later? From 1960 to 2000, 25 businesses, they were the top 25. Only six of them were still in the top list by 2000, right? It's because they didn't learn to change. Many of them had gone out of business entirely. Some of them had got absorbed. It's really important to understand that. There are changes in the world all the time. And if you don't change then you become prematurely aged. You become, you, you're, that's one of the reasons I guess people get cranky, right? Oh, look what's going on these modern days. Come on, stop that. Move with the times. Not saying you have to accept everything as wonderful and good, but you've got to know about it. You've got to understand it. Uh, you know what, one of the things that interested me, I, I was too young. I, in fact, I'm not even sure I was born yet when, uh, transistors, when the first semiconductors were made. Actually, you know what, I think it was 1948. Um, and, um, and what happened is, up till then, all through the 50s and, uh, and into the 60s, but people built radios with vacuum tubes. Do you remember vacuum tubes? In England, we called them valves. <laughs> They glowed. They emitted heat. They had a unique smell that came out of the back of your radio set uh, because of... Now, you've got many companies uh, building millions of vacuum tubes. Um, there were five main ones, five big manufacturers of vacuum tubes. Along comes transistors. Wouldn't you have thought... Transistors, by the way, are going to replace vacuum tubes completely. So wouldn't you have thought vacuum tube makers would say, hey, there's a new technology on the horizon. Guys, we've got to start figuring out how to manufacture transistors because our customers aren't going to keep buying valves or tubes. They're going to want transistors. Do you know that out of the five big makers of vacuum tubes, four of them never, ever made the transition to transistors? The fifth one tried, you know, never did great. The manufacturers of semiconductors were not people who made vacuum tubes before because it's very hard for an organization to throw out old ideas. It's much easier for you. I can point out all kinds of companies that failed to adjust to changing times, right? You'll remember when uh, the microprocessor came along, which was the sequel to the transistor. And the microprocessor made possible the um, personal computer. IBM, like, fell off a cliff because they were not able to. It took them a long time before they became a manufacturer of a personal computer. But even then, they were not able to throw out their old mainframe business in order to build the new. And uh, finally, in the, in the 1980s, 
uh, IBM um, went and even sold their stake in Intel, which was, of course, making microprocessors. Um, it's too bad because that, that share of Intel that they owned would have been worth more than IBM is worth today. But uh, all of that, companies, organizations, very hard for them to throw out the old. But for you, one human being, it's actually not hard. You just got to get used to doing it. Schedule it. Put it on your schedule once a month to sit and think about ideas that I assume automatically are real and true and valid. Maybe they're not. I need to look through my idea closet. Okay, let's go to number seven now, shall we? Um, number seven is start saying no. Learn how to say the word N-O. Firstly to yourself and then when necessary to other people as well. You know, when should you say no to yourself? When you feel like doing something which your head tells you you shouldn't. Or maybe somebody else wants you to do something, but maybe the right answer is no. Maybe that is a distraction, something that is going to take you away from your road to your goals and purposes. And so you've got to understand and you've got to have a steely-eyed focus on what your mission is and what your goal is and what your values are. And you should build clear boundaries around your time and your resources. And anything that's outside of that, you say, I'm really sorry, but I cannot do that. Not possible. Time is limited. And if an activity is not moving you close to your goal, just say no. That's all. And if it pains you too much to say no, then you must start thinking about whether your goals and purposes need to be adjusted to include that act. You know, maybe, maybe the pain is telling you that that somehow has to be worked into your goals. But you, it all warrants some really worthwhile consideration. And um, be aware that even some conversations, the answer should be no. Somebody engages you in a conversation, I don't want to be rude, you know, and, and you continue the conversation, it's not good because when you participate in a conversation, it shapes your soul. It is impacting how you will intuitively think about something. One of the best examples of this, by the way, is something which you can either learn from men trying to pick up women in a bar, or you can preferably learn it from the third chapter of Genesis, which begins with the, uh, uh, with the words, Now the serpent, the snake, was the shrewdest of all the wild beasts that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Hey, Eve, did God really tell you that you're not allowed to eat of any trees in the garden? All right? Notice what he does. He engages her in conversation, but he's very clever. He does it in a way that is hard to resist. Very hard to resist. Right? The silly question in the bar, hey, do you come here often? Uh, the answer is no, and she turns back to uh, nursing the white wine she's drinking, and you are out. You're done. You're gone. You're forgotten. You're finished. Um, but notice what the serpent said to Eve. He's, he knew full well that he was saying something that wasn't true. Because God had just said, you may eat of all the trees of the garden, eat them, enjoy them. 
just don't eat of the two trees in the middle of the garden. So he distorts it and he says, hey, is it true God told you you're not allowed to eat of any of the trees in the garden? And she can't help herself. It's almost instinctive. She responds and says, no, 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 he didn't say that at all. Well, guess what? They're now in a conversation, which is exactly what he wanted. And uh, men in bars who are experienced know what they're doing in this uh, lamentable way of finding a wife uh, know full well that there are some questions that are just closed-ended. The answer is monosyllabic and you're done. And there are other questions, but they all know it has to be a question because the trick is to engage her in conversation, and that changes the future. So be aware that sometimes there are conversations to which your answer has to be no. This is not worth my while. I'm out. All you've got to do now is find a polite way of extricating yourself, but you need to get out of there. Number eight, shall we? Let's go to number eight. Number eight is, please use other people and pay them. When I say use, I don't mean exploit. I mean, please. I mean, I know people who spend hundreds of dollars on a pair of shoes or hundreds of dollars on a new iPhone or hundreds of dollars on a bottle of fine wine but they balk at hiring a handyman or to hire a bookkeeper to help with their taxes or to hire a consultant to teach them how to do something on the internet maybe uh, or to hire a teacher or a coach and instead they try and do it all themselves. A really, really bad idea. The good Lord created a world in which specialization pays off for everybody. People who try and do everything for themselves end up like subsistence peasants. They run around, they plant seeds, and then they go and they shear the sheep, and then they run and grow some cotton, and then they run back and milk the cows. And At the end of the day, they haven't accomplished nearly as much as those farmers who specialize and trade with one another. And the same is true in your life as well. Figure out some of the things that you are not so good at and decide to pay somebody else to do those things for you. And today, with the wonders of the World Wide Web, finding a person is not nearly as hard as it used to be. Today, you are not in, for many things, you're not even restricted to your local neighborhood. You don't have to put a sign up on the, lo on the telephone pole or a sign up at your grocery store. I'm looking for some. No, there are better ways to do it now. And so dramatically enhance your life by using other people and pay them for it, obviously. You know, don't, don't ask for favors. Arrange for a contract. That's the way to do it. And it'll go well for you. It's really, really very worthwhile doing it that way. Um, number 10. Oh, we're up to number 10 already. Oh, we're doing well. Okay. Number 10 is you have to remember that making money when inflation is going on is actually far easier than making money when deflation is going on. Now, inflation is a much more likely scenario because it is the result of corrupt governments, essentially adding onto the financial burden of the population by printing too much money, 
which does two things. It erodes the value of money, and also it raises people into higher tax brackets in what we call progressive taxation. It's not a good thing. Inflation isn't good. Deflation isn't good either. But um, most of the time, and certainly if you look at the last um, 60 years, you know, think from 1960 to the time I'm taping this show in 2020, 60 years, the value of the dollar has shrunk beyond anything you can possibly imagine. It is truly stupendous. In other words, if you imagine everything that um, $50 would buy you in 1960, imagine you went out and spent $50 in 1960. To get those exact same things now, you'd spend about $400, right? That gives you an idea. It's absolutely incredible. Or or to put it another way, perhaps, if you had $100 in your pocket in 1960, and you kept that $100, it's now worth, in buying power, about $9. That's right. So inflation is a time to borrow money, right? Because you end up getting good dollars, and when you pay it back, they're cheap dollars, they're worthless dollars. By contrast, in a deflation environment, The last thing you want to do is borrow money because the opposite is happening. Now, I don't think deflation is really that likely. Uh, A lot of people thought so because of so-called globalization. So globalization will force prices down. Production goes from high-cost countries to low-cost countries. Prices fall. And all of that is true. But... There are certain things where prices don't fall. Anything government-related, most specifically taxation, climbed hugely. The amount of your money that goes to taxes at various levels between 1960 and 2020 in the United States of America, huge increase. And then additionally, with the tremendous difficulties imposed on the world's economies by the exaggerated and panic-driven reaction of government to the uh, coronavirus, uh, I, don't see infl- I don't see inflation stopping anytime soon. But the smart person is aware of it. Do not have out-of-control debt, because if there should be a change in the environment, and particularly if, if debts are called, You end up having to pay for money with far more expensive dollars. And so uh, all of these things in measure to be aware that making money when the value of money is going down all the time, it's a lot easier. And you've got to think about how much of your financial good fortune is due to inflation and how much of it really is due to solid underlying fundamentals in your business plan. So I guess I'm saying in number 10, simply be aware of the environment out there. You could say that this is covered under be aware of change, 
But this is a very specific kind of change. It's the kind of change that many people overlook. And it's one of the things that government likes about inflation because most citizens do not notice. Most citizens are not aware that government is inflating the value of your money. So um, that would be number 10. Be careful of that. Uh, number 11. How many did I say we should do today? Uh, I said we'll do 13. Fine. And uh, number 11. People need the right balance of freedom and structure. Okay, what do I mean by that? And what's more, that applies to societies as well. But let's look at people first. I spoke earlier about scheduling yourself, making sure that you don't have too much freedom. But there still has to be some measure of freedom. And for me, that is 25 hours from Friday evening until Saturday night. I take one-seventh of my week for freedom. And the reason is because creative thought does need a certain amount of freedom for it to happen. If you only confine every day, seven days a week from your wake up till you're going to bed, according to a schedule, you'll probably get a lot done as an employee, but I don't think you'll ever be an entrepreneur because that requires some creative thinking. And so, you know, I'm not, obviously, I'm not telling you folks how to organize your lives. Each and every one of you is unique and you'll have your own ways. I'm just telling you that what you need is some kind of balance between freedom and structure. And about a seventh is a very good ratio to aim at. About a seventh of your time, you may decide to do it on a day basis, right? Where one seventh of every day you spend in contemplation. You spend with nothing pulling on you, no phone next to you, just thinking with a notepad in front of you. It could be very, very powerful. Or you might choose to do it as I do, uh, one day a week. Uh, either way, it doesn't matter. About a seventh of your time to go on freedom and the rest structured. And it's like that with societies as well. I've noticed that most of Russian creativity took place before the Russian Revolution in 1917. For about 75 years before that, which is the only period I've sort of looked at, there really was a lot of creativity going on right now. Admittedly, part of the reason there was freedom there was that the empire, the Russian Empire, was dying. Um, it was on its way out. But perhaps in that freedom... What flourished was a measure of creativity. Uh, there were authors, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, which, who should be read, uh, Chekhov, who needn't be read, Turgenev and Gogol, nah, not necessarily. Uh, in music, there was interesting things going on in Russian music. Tchaikovsky, right? You remember he wrote the 1812? Well, that's... That's when he was writing it at that period, just after that, actually, or a little off, way after that. Um, there were other musicians. Um, and, and a lot of that music is, is still relevant and, and real to this day. It's important. But that's when it happened. That's when we saw it. And it's interesting because the same thing, I think, happens in China. Um, I was told by a friend that he'd overheard two businessmen 
in Vancouver. Now, Vancouver, Canada has a huge Chinese population because a lot of Chinese business people bought property in Vancouver in order to have a sort of insurance policy, particularly the Chinese, but most specifically Hong Kong. Because as it came closer to the British handing back Hong Kong, a lot of people suspected, rightly as it turns out, that China would not adhere to the commitments they made uh, regarding Hong Kong freedom. And so a lot of people bought property in Vancouver and uh, and I've written, I've spoken in an earlier show a couple of years ago uh, about unused condominiums in Vancouver, entire neighborhoods uh, that are dark at night because the buildings and, and condominiums and apartments are all owned by absentee Hong Kong residents. Uh, but at any rate, two two uh, Chinese businessmen talking in Vancouver, and they're saying um, they're there, they have to stay for six months in order to qualify for Canadian citizenship, and they're lamenting their bad fortune, because if they were back in China, they could be making money. But now in Vancouver, there's just no way to make any money. And to them, Vancouver was an economic wasteland, which you know isn't true, right? But why was it to them? And... I really think that one of the reasons is because the money they were making in China was based on an economic disequilibrium. It was based on the fact that there were a lot of people in China who hadn't yet moved into Western patterns of consumption. And if you were a Chinese businessman at the right time who was bringing high tech to China, you're doing very well. If you're a Chinese businessman bringing low-cost Chinese clothing to the West, you're doing very well. But if you are doing business in the West, in Vancouver, you've truly got to be creative. It's not enough to... There isn't the same economic imbalance because pretty much everyone in Vancouver's kind of middle class, roughly where they are. Uh, you're not going to be able to come up with anything that they've never heard of or don't know. But if you innovate something, if you create something new, then you make money there as well. You, you provide a service. And it seems maybe possible. And here I'm, it's a little too early for me to state this with any degree of certainty, but I'm sharing with you a Rabbi Daniel Lappin speculation. And that is that China may be overbalanced in the idea of structure, in the area of structure, too little freedom. Maybe. Now, I've not been to China yet, so I don't... Well, you know, I have actually. No, I was in Taiwan. Um, and Taiwan is different. But maybe China suppresses creativity because there is no freedom. It's all structure. So they certainly get a whole lot done, right? Their, their military is becoming a serious problem. Uh, their economy is real. You know, I, I laugh at people who say, oh, the Chinese economy is teetering on the edge of a cliff no, you wish, but it isn't. Um, will they have to go one way or that? Will they have to ease up so freedom stimulates creativity? Maybe. We shall see. But what I do know now is it certainly seems likely that the Chinese are very, very good at replicating, perhaps less good at innovating. But again, that could change very, very quickly. So I'm not going to count on that at all, <clears throat> but um, it is possible, <clears throat> pardon me, 
it is possible that uh, that that those two businessmen in two Chinese Hong Kong businessmen in uh, Vancouver, it's very possible that that's actually what was going on for them, and um, and that really um, um, they were. Um, not able, they were not accustomed to the idea of innovation. Uh, looking back at, at Russia, uh, it wasn't just music and literature, but in science, prior to the uh, Soviet Union coming in, um, there were things happening in Russia in science. Um, there were Nobel Prize winners from Russia. Uh, there are names that you'll, you'll know of. Uh, Dmitry Mendeleev. You remember I've often spoken about the periodic table of chemical elements. That was his. Um, Markov chains for the mathematician Andrei Markov. Uh, we use those in physics. Um, Nikolai Lobachevsky uh, worked on non-Euclidean geometry. And, um, and really, uh, scientific advance requires uh, the freedom to be skeptical. And of course... Right now in the United States of America, uh, freedom is rigidly suppressed. I don't think there's ever been less intellectual, academic, or speech freedom in the history of the United States of America than there is now. And don't be surprised if creativity shrinks away to the vanishing point. And that's exactly what happened when the Soviet Union imposed socialism. All creativity stopped in, the, in Russia and now they stole technology. All their ideas were stolen and replicated. And a great deal of Chinese technology is stolen and replicated. Because socialism suppresses all freedom. And some freedom is required for creativity as well. So remember, within the need, the hugely important need to structure and systemize and schedule your day, your creativity, you also need some degree of freedom to stimulate your creative juices. Uh, number 12. Number 12. Okay, here we go. Number 12 is, particularly in the current climate, wherever you are in the world, think of being your own boss rather than looking for a job. Particularly if you have been made redundant. You should certainly try and find another job. You never know. You might, you might do well. But also at the same time, start thinking about a business you can start. And here's the most important. Now, this could be a show all on its own, but it isn't. So I'm going to just give you a, a, a short summary of just part of it, which is as follows. You've got to think for starting a business, not in terms of what you want, but, it, but in terms of what you can give others. Now, it may sound intuitive or counterintuitive, depending where you're coming from, but never mind how it sounds. Just focus on this idea that the absolute wrong way to start thinking about how you can start a business is by saying to yourself, well, let's see, I need an income of $10,000 a month, so I've got to make sure that there is enough revenue in my business that I'm thinking of starting of $120,000 a year. Uh, that's got to be at least that amount in profit. Now, let's see, what do I do to get that sort of money? Wrong, 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 wrong. Don't do that. No, never mind what you need. You've got to start off saying, what can I do for God's other children? How can I 
supply the needs and the desires of other people. What are the needs and desires of people that I can supply? Who are these people? What is it that I can do for them? Think along those lines and you will be able to structure a business. If you can find an answer to that, if you can find what it is that you can do for other people, then you are on your way to being able to start a business. And uh, finally, number 13, be aware that uh, there are three parts to our beings. We are bodies, we are emotions, and we are a soul, spiritual. The spiritual part of us is purely spiritual. It's, it's, we're almost angel-like in our spiritual. In our bodies, we're almost animal-like. And in our emotions, we're somewhere in between. Right? Our feelings are a little different. Now, here is the important way to understand this, because this has implications in understanding your family members, and it has implications in understanding your business activities as well. And here's the rule. This is is And number 13, are you ready? People are very alike in their bodies. They are less alike. They're a little bit unique in emotions, but they're completely unique in their spirit. And so in other words, when a, uh, a man or a woman bites into a lovely, fresh Georgia peach, the sensation they experience is pretty much the same all round. When people enjoy a hamburger, sensation is pretty much standard all around. When people drink some alcohol, everybody feels pretty much the same thing. When it moves to emotions, well, yeah, people fall in love and a, a man writes poetry about the woman he's met and a woman walks around with stars in her eyes about the man she's met. And yes, those are a little bit more unique, but deep down you know that every guy who's ever become infatuated with a woman kind of feels pretty much what you're feeling. And every woman knows that every woman who's got stars in her eyes for a guy, whether he's good for her or not, pretty much every woman who's ever lived has felt exactly the same feeling. Right? It's a little bit unique. It's a little bit different, but not a whole lot. But when we move into our spiritual arenas, each and every one of us is absolutely and completely unique. And that's why I don't think of fingerprints. I call them soul prints because our fingers point at the uniqueness of each of our souls. We are completely unique in our souls and our spirits. We are much more alike in our feelings. And we are completely alike everybody else when it comes to our bodies. No difference there at all. So don't kid yourself. Uh, the way you feel after a physical experience is pretty much the way every other person has ever felt who's gone through that same physical experience. But if there are emotional overtones to it, there'll be something you own uniquely there. Not a lot, but something. 
But if there are spiritual overtones to it and you evaluate it in terms of your soul, well, now you're engaged in a totally unique area that belongs uniquely to you and that no other person in the history of the world has ever experienced in exactly the same way. So this has implications, as I say, ways, and I'm sure you know, it's not just your children that are like you, right? And, and, and it's shocking when you not only realize they look like you, but when they start saying things or reacting to things or doing things the way you do. And, uh, you know, it's usually the other way, right? People reach an age where they say, oops, I'm sounding like my mother. I'm sounding like my father. Yeah, we, we understand. That's absolutely true. That does happen. What you may not know is that husbands and wives begin to become closer and they resemble one another. The more time goes by, if it's a good marriage, they start thinking along similar lines. And so they share not just physical sensations and not just feelings, but they actually even start sharing spiritual, at least on some level, a connection there as well. And of course, on a, on a business level, if you are supplying your fellow human beings with something physical, then it's going to be very commoditized, very standardized. If it has an emotional overtone to it, well, now there's going to be something a little more uh, significant. When people, when diners were selling cups of coffee at, you know, 50 cents, there was a physical need. They were supplying a physical need. But when a certain international coffee house chain, whose name I shall not mention because they do not advertise on this show, uh, they discovered that if you supply something spiritual and something emotional, you can charge not 50 cents, but $2.50. Now that was a breakthrough. And this is a principle that has relevance and application in your life as well. And that, my dear happy warriors, is as far as I think we're going to go for today. And so stop by the rabbidaniellappin.com website. Um, connect with us. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know what you're doing. Let me know if, if this show means anything to you. I like hearing that. I just got a beautiful letter from somebody listening from Russia. And uh, she gave some indication of how much she gets from the show, what she gets out of it. Other people write with ideas. Somebody else wrote with a quote from, um, from uh, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's book, Democracy in America. A magnificent quote he sent me by email. And he did this by going to our website and uh, where it says about us, he hit, hit contact us and he sent me. And here's the quote he sent me. And I've read uh, Democracy in America and I had not remembered this magnificent paragraph. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, a listener to this show sent it in. Political correctness is communist propaganda writ small. In my study of communist societies, I came to the conclusion that the purpose of communist propaganda was not to persuade or convince or to inform, but to humiliate. And therefore, the less it corresponded to reality, the better. When people are forced to remain silent, when they are being told the most obvious lies, or even worse, when they are forced to repeat the lies themselves, they lose once and for all their sense of probity. To assent to obvious lies is to cooperate with evil. 
and in some small way to become evil oneself. One's standing to resist anything is thus eroded and even destroyed. A society of emasculated liars is easy to control. I think if you examine political correctness, it has the same effect and is intended to. Uh, dear happy warriors, can you believe that this was written by Alexis de Tocqueville in the 1800s? Did you know that political correctness was an issue? Communist propaganda, uh, when he visits communist countries, he speaks about this. And he's so right on that. It's so wonderful. So um, that was somebody who, who wrote an email by going to our site and saying, here is um, something relevant to what you spoke about in your last show. So I'm enormously grateful. And um, uh, here's an email I just got. All right. Somebody went to our website, went to About Us, contact us. Hello, Rabbi. I am grateful to have been raised to conduct business in a moral and honest way. With that said, I have greatly improved and have a much deeper understanding now thanks to your teachings. My son, an adult in another state, and I discuss this a lot, and we would like you to consider doing a show from the perspective of why so many conduct business so badly, which allows the left opportunity to condemn capitalism. Examples would be cronyism, voluntarily giving up control to the government on silly initiatives, unbelievable payouts to executives and board members when perform when performance is poor, etc. Thank you for all you do. And it's David with a last name from Jensen Beach, Florida. And uh, how absolutely wonderful it is. I love those letters. So visit RabbiDanielLappin.com. Make sure you're on our mailing list and then please stop by the store and find yourself some resource that we create and provide for a way of enhancing your life in the areas of faith, family, fortune, finance, uh, finance, uh, friendship, and uh, fitness, your health. So all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. So until next week, when I look forward so much to being together again, thank you for being part of the show. Thank you, especially for sharing it with other people. Appreciate that very much. And I wish you a wonderful week of good times in your family, in your finances, in your faith, in your friendships, and in your physical fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.